Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This episode is the audio version of a live online session from JLF Colorado 2020. Running Toward Mystery, The Adventure of an Unconventional Life. The Venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi in conversation with Mayank Shekhar. Uh, welcome to uh, JLF Colorado, Venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm presuming you're in California. I am for the moment. It's a, right. it's a pleasure and delight. Thank you. And it's what, 8 o'clock for you? 8 p.m., 8.30? What is it? Uh, something like that. I think it might be 7-ish. 7-ish. Yeah. That's, not, that's not as bad as what's happening here in Bombay, which is where I am. It's around 8.30 in the morning. Uh, and for people uh, like me who pretty much wake up late, I, I want to actually ask you if there's anything in Buddhism uh, that sort of, uh, or actually any religion or any philosophy that looks at the world as morning people and night people. Some people simply sleep very late and some people sit, and the two really meet. They're like two kinds of people in the world. Have you ever encountered anything of this nature? Uh, yes, quite a lot, actually. If you if you come to MIT someday, you will meet some of my students who actually prefer to observe a 36-hour workday, and, and then they go to sleep for another 10 hours after that. Um, I, th I think, uh, you know, being a morning or a night person is, is, uh, is preference of the individual. Uh, what I actually uh, uh, suggest oftentimes is, of course, not to be sleep deprived. Um, um, and, and uh, you know, that, that is a major, major issue uh, of our time. Um, as, a, as a society, I don't think we have ever been as sleep deprived uh, as in the last 50 to 60 years. Um, so it's a, it's a uh, you know, whether you want to be a morning person or a night person, just get plenty of sleep. But is there, is there uh, especially with, uh, you know, with a monastic life or uh, being a monk uh, and across, uh, you know, across religions, uh, I've noticed there's a lot of, uh, you know, weightage given to waking up early in the morning and, and sleeping, uh, sleeping early too, right? I mean, uh, do you think it also comes from a time because there was no electricity back in the day and you really had to sleep early and wake up to get the maximum number of hours of daylight? Is, do you think that could be a reason? Um, it, it could be a reason more for sort of agricultural and, and farming society. But uh, from, a, from a spiritual perspective, I think there is something uh, quite mystical about dawn, you know, mm -hmm. the, the light of dawn and the, the feeling of being in dawn. And also the sense of quietude that you experience in dawn, you know, just, just at the cusp of between, say, 2 a.m. and 4.30 in the morning. Uh, you get to observe... Um, the stillness, the quietness, uh, except for when you're in Times Square, it's chaotic all the time. Uh, right. But otherwise, you, you you get to sort of experience the stillness and silence. Uh, or Bombay for that matter. Or for uh, Bombay for that matter, yeah. that's true, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I think there's something something uh, beautiful about about being there in the morning um, and, uh, and and just just being there in dawn. And as a uh, as a practicing monk, would you consider that a better time uh, to meditate, for instance, between two a.m. and four thirty? 
Um, generally, I mean, in, in my own case, that is often the, the thing. Um, you know, my day generally starts around 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, despite of what the popular thinking is, I often suggest people that you should try to meditate when you're feeling really high energy. You know, oftentimes people want to meditate when they're already sort of low energy or they say that, you know, I would like to meditate at the end of the day, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm done with everything. But then what happens is rather than meditating, they just fall asleep, you know, mm. uh, because the relaxation response of human bodies is, is quite funny in that way, that the moment it experiences just even a bit of relaxation, it goes into this zone of letharginess, you know. Uh, because it doesn't know how to relax and be awake and 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 be sort of alert, um, uh, so much of sort of initial, uh, you know, training and meditation is about how to sort of maintain the balance of relaxed and wakeful state. Right. I mean, uh, we're of course uh, talking to each other in different time zones because these are the times of COVID, as it were. It would have been lovely to meet you, of course, in person. It would have been so. It's is by the way, it's seven o'clock uh, past your bedtime because you're going to be up oh, at three thirty. No, 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 no. Uh, I think uh, uh, if I was, if you had caught me in uh, in Cambridge and uh, at MIT, generally the bedtime there is. Uh, in, in line with the student life. Uh, so I'm generally up until uh, uh, 11 or midnight. Uh, these days, because of COVID the past 10 months, I think I've been going to bed roughly around 9ish uh, or 9.30ish and waking up much earlier. Yeah. Fair enough. This has been extraordinary times, uh, uh, Venerable, in terms of, uh, of course, I mean, I don't think humans who've, who've lived for as long as uh, most of them who have been on this planet have seen something like COVID as an experience. Uh, people staying in, people, uh, you know, working from home, uh, sitting at home for hours and hours and end. I'm wondering what you make of it in terms of, do you think it could have possibly made us, uh, for lack of a choice sometimes perhaps, uh, made us more introspective than we've ever been? One would hope so. Um, and and, and uh, I think that would have been a, a good outcome um, if um, we had sort of changed our mindset towards uh, COVID as, um, as uh, you know, uh, a lot of people have complained about uh, being lonely uh, during mm -hmm. these times or a sense of, sense of alienation. Right. Uh, but rather than loneliness or alienation, if we had sort of uh, understood more in terms of the language of solitude uh, uh, or in the language of uh, uh, introspection, I think, I think that would have been a, uh, a good learning curve. I mean, you know, what COVID has offered, regardless of all the challenges, what it has offered is a grand social experiment that we couldn't have designed, uh, e even in sort of best case scenario. Uh, when you have, uh, you know, large uh, chunk of population uh, left to their devices alone, uh, where we sort of really come to understand the beauty of connectivity, you know, in, in the sense that we had taken human connection for granted. We had taken so many things for granted that in the last 10 months of disruption, uh, we have, you know, at least begun to sort of think about what are truly essentials uh, in our lives. Uh, and hopefully, you know, these learnings will uh, will continue and we won't go back into some kind of mechanical rut after the vaccines become mainstream. Right. Uh, do you think it's also probably brought us closer to the idea of mortality in a way that we've never known uh, before? In, in, in certain places, yes. Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, growing up in India, mortality was kind of right in your face. You know, uh, you, you walk on the streets and you see, you know, dead bodies passing here and there. 
and and so you know once in a while you will at least you know be triggered that you know there is something called mortality um, in in the Western society or in a lot of other societies, uh, what has happened is that we have given death a very cosmetic uh, look. You know, uh, there's a lot of denial um, uh, that that happens around death. Or or how my uh, late friend Thomas Keating used to suggest that death has a very negative PR, a very bad PR in the West. Um, and and I think you know one of the key things with death or or mortality is that you know it 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 sort of gives you this deep sense of reflection that our time is in fact finite. Um, and because the time is finite, it should be treated as something that we deeply cherish. Uh, not to take our days for granted, not to take our relationships for granted, not to simply presume that things are going to last like this forever. Um, so, you know, when even in spiritual terms, when we talk about mortality or death or introspection on, on that regard, it's not, not to make people feel down. Mm -hmm. It's simply to say that, you know, cherish every moment that you have, cherish every relationship that you have, because things will change. And sometimes things will change unexpectedly really fast. You, did you consider that as one of the defining features of the Western and the Eastern cultures, for instance, if you look at death and the way, uh, say, Hindus treat death is is a very loud ceremony. Almost everyone cries, you know, cries their heart out, and the dead body can be seen by everyone. Uh, practically, is laid in the middle at the center on the on the pyre, as it were. Uh, whereas it would be almost the opposite. Let's say if you look at a, a death in a Christian family, which is supposed to be a very somber affair. You know, everything's closed. Uh, is, is that something that you see as a as a difference between how uh, we look at that person uh, between two cultures? I, th I think in 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 most of the Eastern traditions, death is a very raw experience in some ways. You know, meaning that it sort of brings it very closer to how nature is. You know, meaning the the cycle of birth and death. Uh, I think what happens oftentimes in the West is because of again, as I said, the cosmetic nature around death. Um, so they do have something called, you know, open casket uh, funerals where you actually go and pay respect to that body. But when you look at the body, you know, it's it's sort of layers of makeup and, and you know, wearing like a three-piece suit if it's a man or wearing like this beautiful dress if it's a woman. Meaning, again, you know, taking away from from this aspect that that this thing is now coming to an end, this, this particular chapter is coming to an end. And I think that does take away certain things in, in the sense that we don't wish to think of it readily. Uh, at least we don't wish to think of it in our own sort of day-to-day um, um, uh, -day experience. You know, uh, yes, death happens. It'll happen to people who are old or people who are sick. But we, we never think that it'll happen to us or it'll happen to us all of a sudden. You know? And why do you think that is so? Is it is it the fact of avoiding the idea of death just makes life a little more worthwhile? Uh, as against constantly thinking about the worthlessness, everything around us, I think. I think the the thing is, you know, there, there are multiple layers uh, around it. I, I think one is that if people actually thought about death more often, perhaps they would not engage as much as in the meaninglessness of things. Mm. Um, you know, uh, sometimes meaninglessness of things could be entertaining. Uh, you know, it's 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 a wonderful pastime. Uh, but when you're reflecting on something like mortality, you actually begin to have this vivid experience that 
moments are actually fleeting moments you know it's not just it's not just poetry uh, it could be poetry but it, but these are fleeting moments and and so then it adds a kind of level of seriousness to life you see but it doesn't need it doesn't mean that you lose the sense of humor or or that you lose the sense of fun uh, all it implies is that you begin to uh, enrich every aspect of your life by knowing that this could be the last day or tomorrow could be the last day, or it could be the last day with this particular individual, you see? And that's one of the things is that, you know, if, if, if you come to the sense of awareness that this could be your last day, imagine every last word that we have said to somebody else, okay? the gravity of it, uh, you know, it might change. We might actually become more honest. We might actually become more kinder. Uh, we might actually become more caring individuals uh, just by, uh, you know, a simple reflection on, on on mortality and again remember that you know humans are one of the rare species that actually is aware of their own mortality say and and so it's 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 really remarkable that that particular piece of information the self-awareness around mortality that what does our species actually can do with it right uh, you spoke about uh, your growing up years in india and that's precisely this lovely book that you've written. Uh, thank you for writing it. It makes me, uh, you know, privileged to read this and then to see you. It's almost me like I know you, uh, you know, having read this book, uh, know you almost through and through in terms of at least how you you put it across. And I think uh, what's fascinating about uh, the book, uh, Running Toward Mystery, The Adventure of an Unconventional Life, uh, is how you essentially uh, attune to the belief uh, that, you know, basically humans, uh, will look at the world through a lens that is either rational or irrational, uh, whereas there is another domain that is beyond these two. And that's really what happened to you, uh, uh, Venerable, in terms of uh, as a child, you had these dreams, and then you went to follow that dream in a very literal sense and actually found it. Uh, you ran away from home, I think, uh, for if there are any kids watching this, uh, don't try this at home, uh, running away <laughs> from home. <laughs> uh, uh, but honestly, I mean, in that spiritual journey, which is what you recounted in this memoir, is there anything that you consider as your favorite uh, story? As a favorite story? Uh, no, I think, you know, all, all the moments are favorites in, 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 in one way uh, or the other. And, and of course, I had to narrow it down quite a bit um, in the sense that uh, the last thing I wanted was uh, it to be a 700 page book. Uh, which would have been more of a burden both for me and for the readers. Uh, so I had to I had to really pick and choose, and I had good help from my students and especially Zara, um, um, uh, who has uh, uh, you know uh, uh, the students who sort of you know uh, uh, encouraged uh, uh, me to write. But I, I think you know um, I would say that there were certain moments um, that were more earth shattering than others in terms mm -hmm. of your experience of things. And so one particular episode um, that I that I uh, have entitled in the book, Is There So Much Joy in Your Religion? Mm. Um, I think that was, uh, you know, one of those, um, uh, you know, favorite moments where, you know, all this sort of, uh, 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 you know, uh, experience around, uh, around following a path or practicing a path where, uh, where people think that it's okay to be miserable while being religious. And 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 you know uh, we develop a kind of complacency towards that sense of misery, 
you know, it's almost like holy misery is somehow different from ordinary misery, you know. Uh, but but that was one of the shattering experiences when when that simple question is asked about where is joy um, uh, in your practice. So. And was that question asked uh, by a person who's no more, technically speaking, that you realized later that was in Calcutta? Uh, th that is correct. That, that happened in Delhi. Um, right. But uh, but yes, it, it was an individual who was there and then wasn't there the next day. <laughs> I mean, you, you've spoken about it. Sorry. No, you know, the, the, the thing is that, uh, you know, uh, as you saw that, that in the book, I have tried to uh, suggest to individuals that we should not get trapped into these polarized conversations around uh, rational and irrational, that, that we should try to find uh, domains of non-rational experiences. And, and you know, uh, it's not. It's not to say that that it only takes a certain kind of life to have those kinds of experiences. And many of our day-to-day -day things, uh, you know, when it doesn't make sense to us, you see, sort of already is moving into the domain of non-rational. But one of the things that as human beings we also need to recognize that actually much of our thinking and much of our action is actually irrational. You see, what is rational is our storytelling around it. You see, mm -hmm. meaning that we, when we try to explain our actions to ourselves or to somebody else, we want to make it sound rational. You see, but we humans are highly irrational creatures. You see, uh, but we like to think of ourselves as rational. But but non-rational sort of moves beyond those two territories where you actually suspend, um, you know, the desire to have rational explanation because you recognize that there are certain limitations um, at that particular moment around it. Miracles are just events, meaning that, you know, whatever we deem as paranormal is outside of our normal domain of experiences. But for individuals who are in that particular kind of domain, it's just like common sense. Why wouldn't it be that way? You know, and that's another thing that that you recognize later on, like, you know, uh, like uh, I haven't uh, touched on this book, but but, uh, you know, for one example, when when I used to spend time at Kumbh Mela, you know, in, in India, and you are there, you know, with this cluster of, you know, uh, an intimate cluster of 15 to 20 million sadhus, you see. And, and, and you're observing things, you're talking to them, and everything is just like matter of fact, you see. Uh, which in another domain would be like every two minutes somebody would stumble and, and say, oh, no, no, but that sounds paranormal, but that sounds mystical. But in this cluster of individuals, it was like, Oh, it happened to you. Oh, that's very interesting. You know, it happened to this person as well. You know, and, and the conversation just flows. No. I guess if you're living, uh, and, and perhaps I'm talking about the, you know, those sadhus, as it were, and if you're living in that in that realm, it becomes harder perhaps to live in the realm where you're being questioned all the time because everything that you're saying is paranormal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it is, uh, I mean, you know, um, even... Um, uh, even sort of in in day-to-day -day sort of conventional life, I think that's one of the uh, both the struggles and joy that that uh, you know uh, of of kind of trying to maintain a seamless um, uh, uh, journey or or moving between sort of uh, you know non-conventional or conventional experiences where you're trying to sort of maintain a kind of semblance. Uh, between you know what matters and what doesn't matter, and 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 I think there's a lesson that that's that that is to be learned there. Meaning you know it's it's not always sort of uh, kind of a fantastical thing. 
but but there are moments when there are certain kinds of insights that might arise that makes you also you know question uh, everything around you, uh, you know, and 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 that I think is 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 I think the beauty of of uh, the non-rational. Right. I mean, I'm also getting into uh, well, we talk about non-rational, but the other aspect I wanted to touch upon, venerable, uh, is the idea of non-violence, for instance. Uh, and there is the, the depressing part in the book, uh, you know, when uh, one of your uh, mentors, Nabate, you know, who's killed, uh, uh, killed for being a monk, I'm presuming, right? I mean, uh, and you also like mentioned another person in Sri Lanka who's, who was similarly killed. Now, when you live in a society uh, like that, of course, not all of us would have possibly faced violence of that nature in our personal lives. But in general, when you live in a society like that, uh, which is it could be emotionally uh, you know violent in its own way uh, how difficult is it to keep the faith as it were uh, especially when humans in general are attuned up for self-preservation and therefore self-defense all the time well that's a very good question i, I think one of the challenges um, you know uh, again is uh, to maintain a sense of optimism or hopefulness uh, especially in humanity and especially in the most challenging times um, and and in not only in the experience with with these individuals but also with uh, you know some of the work that that I've been doing around conflict resolution and uh, both in Asia and and Latin America uh, you know there are there are moments when you know when you experience a sense of despair and, and you ask yourself well where is all this going? Or, or can it be changed, and and so on. Uh, but I think that's that's again one of the places of strength that uh, one's uh, spiritual practice can offer, which is this, this, you know, it it is a sense of sort of hopefulness and the ability for humans to change. And and I think you know this is something that we we need to ponder a bit bit more in the sense that you know if we take away the possibility of transformation, if we take away the possibility of change, what is left of humanity? What is left of you? What is left of I? I say. And, and that's one of the things that I think those who are especially, uh, uh, you know, claiming to have a kind of religious bent of mind or a spiritual bent of mind, uh, that they need to sort of focus more deeply on this, this promise of transformation. And it may not happen in a short period of time. It may not happen even within our lifetime. Uh, but the fact is that much of our work, even in the face of very sort of grotesque violence, um, is that we'll continue our work and we hope that this person will change or, or that this person will hopefully go through uh, a kind of transformation. And again, you know, I, I, I'm not an... Uh, you know, I don't believe in sort of idealism of of of, of some sense. So so the the timeline and the expectation needs to be realistic. So, but that's where I think you know the force of kindness or the force of compassion really sort of um, takes its flight because otherwise you know it just becomes sort of a very passive talk of of compassion and kindness. But it is especially in these kinds of scenarios uh, that you begin to look at it as a as a game changer. Do you think uh, in that sense of venerable that religion per se, and you, you have a beautiful line here, which I'd like to read out right in a bit, uh, religion per se or organized religion per se is in a position to have the transforming effect. 
because we've had we've had religions for thousands and thousands of years it doesn't seem like it's made us better human beings and certainly it's it's been so much about religions fighting each other about mine is better than yours has it really served that purpose uh, and where do you think it's sort of uh, it's shown its flaws as it were no no that that is that is actually quite true i mean the the thing is that um, you know you have to understand that at the end of the day religious organizations and religious institutions at times simply become another instrument to fulfill the human desire of greed and deceit and power dynamics okay and in that regard then religious organizations are no different from any other organizations that are created and ruled by humans uh, uh for exploitation of humans and and so on uh what is beautiful i would suggest in in the spiritual or the religious framework is that at least it continues to allude to the idea that this is wrong it continues to allude to the idea that uh, that such exploitation or such oppression of human and human minds um is an incorrect way uh, to live life that's it uh now having said that i think that's why we are beginning to see a certain kind of resurgence in terms of one's interest in spirituality or religious life but whether the organizations themselves are going to be legitimate or whether those organizations will continue to live or 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 flourish in the ways they have been flourishing in the past is questionable and so you begin to see that that there is already uh you know a tremendous kind of inner struggle and reformation uh that most of these religious organizations are forced to 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 reckon with otherwise they become obsolete they become stagnated um and uh, and i think you know that has been uh, one of the sort of ongoing uh, historical challenges with with religious institutions and you had a personal experience with that where you mentioned that my holier than thou judgment was not particularly mine when you referred to yourself uh because you know you saw uh you saw what you were being uh and the self righteous spiritual pride drives the secularism that plagues organized religion and buddhism is no exception uh now if we are talking about organized organized religion in general and you know we're all aware of the the havoc it wreaks across the world and you worked uh, and you written about interfaith dialogue uh venerable exactly how does one go about this interfaith dialogue where one organized religion can look at the other uh, and sort of just figure out a way to just stop be the way we are i i think this is where you know the the work of uh, uh father thomas keating uh, whom i whom i mentioned in the book is is much more powerful where he sort of speaks of this idea of interspiritual conversations or interspiritual dialogue where we sort of just move beyond this kind of superficial endorsement of each other's religion and basically say your religion is good and mine is good as well but we continue you know underneath all the tensions and escalations that 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 go on that that i think you know you have to understand something which is that you know what religious institutions do offer in terms of the preservation of a body of literature or a body of practice is is basically an ability for individuals to explore it to experiment with it and and go through a transformative process if an individual fails to do that uh then that individual fails to engage with that religious practice 
say then we simply become sort of uh you know um uh kind of passive guards trying to protect a particular tradition and and, and simply perpetuate uh, the 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 status quo and 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 so on so i think we need to start to to rethink this idea that you know firstly we have to really give up this idea that there can be one dominant world religion we have been trying it we have been trying it for thousands of years it just hasn't worked and we have to come to recognize the fact that of the seven plus billion human beings on this planet some will choose a particular path some will design their own path and some will perhaps suggest none of those things you see um, and all of those are valid in the sense that as long as people are willing to explore and transform then it's then it's fine but we cannot be too quick again to dismiss um, religion as well. You know, meaning, you know, again, the death of religion has been announced prematurely on many occasions. Uh, and even to this day, when when people say, "Oh, with all the scientific advancement and all this cliche that religious organizations have to offer, that they're going to die out and so on," no. If you actually look at sociological data on religious beliefs and so on, religions are thriving. See? And in certain areas, the way they are thriving is worrisome. You see? Okay. So you have to then start thinking about, well, what kind of religion should actually thrive in the sense that you as long as we maintain a structure of curiosity, a, a structure of uh, inquisitiveness, in investigation, contemplative questioning, and so on, those might serve us better, you know, regardless of whatever religious institutions we adhere to. Uh, what about mixing of religion and politics, Venerable? Uh, I mean, it's a great way to leverage yourself and, and find yourself in power, right? You know, the, the thing is, uh, you know, and, and having witnessed uh, one of the recent elections right here uh, in, in the United States, separation of church and state is a myth. We like to think again, you know, we like to rationalize and say that should be, yes, in an ideal civic society, that ought to be the case. Um, but religion is such a powerful influence in people's worldviews and the way they make choices and, de and decisions that you see it anywhere in the world. You see, that uh, wherever religion or religious organizations are active, you will see it seeping itself into policy development, into policy framing, into voting and, and, and things of that nature. Um, so I think, you know, the, the, the idea is that we shouldn't blindly suggest separation of church and state, but we should be more informed about how much meddling happens between church and state so that we can design better policies and we can design policies that would be beneficial to the larger uh, you know, civic society, um, uh, uh, and, and not just to a particular religious group, and and that's where I think you know, like Ashoka's uh, framing in India of of secularism as serve dharm sambhav, you know, that it wasn't just some idealism that you know all religions should thrive and flourish um, um, uh, under under a system of good governance, but all it was suggesting is that let's take it all into account, you see, and let's give them the opportunity to bring out the best and take the best and see if we can actually include it in our policy development. And I think that would be the way to go. Uh, also, uh, before I get on to the question from the audience, we have some audience. Just a quick last one. Uh, I'm a journalist, so I just have to ask, 
some of your honesty questions. Uh, what do you make of Islamophobia, Venerable? I mean, it's I mean, from one end of it, which is which is deeply fanatical at one end, and then there is the other end, which is equally fanatical, uh, which is the response to it. Where do you think we're headed with uh, with Islamophobia, which has really gripped most of the planet at this point from a political perspective? I, I think it's a it's a it's not a it's not an issue that we are going to be able to solve overnight for sure. Um, you know, it does require uh, a, a tremendous amount of uh, patience and understanding on on both fronts. The the challenge is this: the challenge is that you know we need to move past the argument that the majority of religion is not such or not so and so. Meaning that you have to understand that unfortunately the world that we live in uh, loudness matters. And even if it's a small group of people who happen to be loud, they are the ones who are setting the emotional tone. They are the ones who are setting the, 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 the tone of conversation. So I do believe and I do hope that the large chunk or the large pop, uh, percentage of moderate Muslims will actually make their voices heard, will actually sort of, uh, you know, rather than sort of just saying that they don't belong, you know, that, you know, nobody has the way to say that, you know, I am a true Muslim and this person is not a true Muslim. Mm. They say, uh, I mean, you know, this is sort of the back and forth of argument that we see in all kinds of religion, uh, you know, uh, as to who claims to be an authentic practitioner of whichever uh, particular tradition, right? But the thing is that, we do need to sort of start giving rise to particular kinds of platform uh, where we are not simply speaking in terms of reactionary tone. We are not simply speaking languages of persecution, but we are actually speaking a, a, a language of moving beyond, you see, a, a language of healing and a language of recognizing that this is how we have perpetuated violence, emotional, spiritual, physical violence for the last thousands of years. Now we are at this juncture where we could change the course of this conversation. Let's take this opportunity. Let's make something of it. And so you're saying that interfaith dialogue also means a dialogue within the faith, within various yes. thoughts, thought processes. I have a question for Emma. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that, you know, uh, uh, you know, oftentimes what happens is that, uh, you know, when you, when you get to interfaith, conversations you see the same faces and right. the same voices again and again and again and it's like it's a, it's a seminar circuit right it's a seminar circuit right. you know and and that's the thing that that at some point you know it's a nice symbolic gesture that we need to see but you have to start questioning the utilitarian aspect of it you see so you have to go deep down to places where there are actually people who have vehemently disagreed with you and disagreed with your propositions and try to see if that's where we can build platforms for conversations. Right. I'm going to take questions. Uh, this is from Emma Thompson, uh, Venerable. We're all living in strange times when religion gets frequently debased into blind belief. Do you think Buddhism with its spirit of inquiry offers a way of harmonizing faith with rationality? Um, I would like to think so. I would like to think that uh, the spirit of inquiry or investigation is built into the tradition. But does that imply that Buddhists cannot succumb to blind belief? No. Uh, you know, we as humans, we all have the tendency to, uh, uh, to succumb to blind faith. And so one of the things that we 
as individuals are responsible and, and as, as traditions, it, uh, it should be responsibilities that we encourage healthy inquiry. We encourage healthy disagreements within the tradition as part of, um, as part of the process of learning and the process of growth. Whenever the argument of a lot of uh, vehement uh, atheists is that faith in itself is blind. What do you make of that? No, no, I think that's a very, that's a very pedestrian argument. It's a very pedestrian argument, meaning that, you know, um, it, it's taking a particular version of faith, you see. Uh, but if you take sort of, you know, the Indic aspect of faith, Shraddha, you see, and if you sort of look into the etymology of the word Shraddha, uh, you know, it's, it's, it implies trust building by virtue of knowing, meaning you have to understand your object of faith, you have to un understand your object of worship. And so you already see that you're pushed to sort of, um, uh, you know, you have to sort of understand the, the boundaries of reasoning. You have to understand the boundaries of the intellectual pursuits in order to build that sense of trust before you get into, into that state. But, you know, the thing is, you have to understand whether we believe in something or we don't believe in something, we carry our day-to-day -day preoccupations of life with so many faiths. It doesn't need to be religious. Right. The faith that I am going to wake up tomorrow morning is a blind faith. You see, the faith that this person that I take for granted is going to stay beside me forever is a blind faith. You see, so in our even secular, uh, you know, preoccupations of life, there are so many blind faiths, and we need to simply begin to eliminate many of those. Okay. Uh, question from uh, uh, Jessica Gomez. Uh, you've written extensively about teachers and their importance in your life. Has the definition of a teacher changed over the years? Of course, of course, um, uh, it has. Um, you know, and and now I I see. Um, uh, I mean, you know, and, and there's nothing to say that I won't change my mind again tomorrow uh, about most of the things that I'm that I'm saying. But but a teacher is 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 a spiritual friend. A teacher is a virtuous friend. Uh, a teacher is somebody who encourages uh, the goodness out of you. The teacher is somebody who makes you, um, uh, you know, uncomfortable at times, perhaps for most part uh, of your life, because the the role of a teacher is to facilitate your sense of growth. You see, um, um, uh, and and that's what you know. I I, I think um, uh, the role uh, of teachers are. Sorry, yeah. sorry to cut you here, but you've written about this extensively in your book as well, and. Uh, you know, when you use the word friend, uh, you know, virtuous friend, of course, uh, I mean, also Socratic idea of, you know, virtue being the reason why you should, you should make friends. But there is an equality, assumption of equality between friendship. Uh, that's a, that's an interesting way of looking at your teacher. Uh, would you also say that you would look at them as an equal, uh, a peer rather than an up and down approach? No, I mean, there, there is an hierarchy that might have started off initially in the relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of peer, but it's not peer in terms of that you become buddies, you see, mm -hmm. meaning they are not there to entertain you, right? Um, so, so, you know, friendships are of many classes and, and not, you know, not all friendships are equal, you know. Uh, your professional friendships are not equal. Even your personal friendships are not equal, meaning there are always um, uh, differentiations. Uh, of, of of various kinds that happen even in our um, uh, even in our uh, uh, experience of secular friendships, but 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 the whole idea of virtuous friendship is just just the sense that somebody who allows virtue to flourish in you, right? Uh, and 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 that we need to seek at least one friend of that nature in our life. 
uh, uh, otherwise uh, you know we may end up with uh, you know 3000 very close facebook friends and none of them reliable when we really need them right right uh, uh, last question mass movements are increasingly being led by spiritual and religious leaders while many such leaders have already existed in the milieu they have always worked in the background to a fairly defined agenda should spiritual leaders play a greater role in mass mobilization or should they focus on literally spiritual pursuits that's a, that's again a challenging question in the sense that uh, you know if you if you look at even uh, some of the uh, earlier spiritual teachers you know it's not like they were seeking to build a movement you know movement just got built around them either because of them or people who uh, you know close students who surrounded them and uh, and so on and even people who were like very quiet even in this particular century when you look at people like raman maharshi and others they didn't want movements built around them but movement just got built that's the nature of how humans function we love to build movements uh, we love to create leaders we love to create followers and so on um and and there's nothing sort of inherently wrong with it uh, i think what is inherently wrong with in 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 the current context is when the primary occupation of a spiritual practitioner is not spiritual pursuit but it is to garner followers right. uh, but it is to garner movements then i think that 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 our uh, that our aspirations for a spiritual life is slightly misplaced i'm going to finish off with uh, with a with a hopeful note uh, from you venerable uh, uh, i have to tell you i'm a, a hardened cynic uh, like a lot of people around me uh, and then it's really lovely for me to read a book like yours uh, makes me look at things a little differently for sure but you know i've come from a from a thought process where you know we just think the world is what it is it's not going to change right uh, what gives you hope and that's the last line i would like to i like the audiences to have what gives you hope about humans still despite all that we've been through and will continue to go through uh well uh, it's, it's it's a complex thing but uh, you know uh uh there was a French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu he said that there are two respond two ways that uh, an individual can respond uh, clinical and cynical uh, cynical uh, at it, at its best is entertainment uh, uh, you know we can laugh about it and so on but it's clinical that really heals the planet that heals the individuals and it makes sure that we don't perpetuate the toxic conditions of the past so it's okay to be cynical from time to time but i think we should find the clinicians in ourselves as well oh thank you very much for moving us from cynical to clinical this is lovely thank you very much uh was lovely talking to you wonderful thank you man such a delight thank you thank you for listening to jaipur bites the jlf podcast i'm your host lakshdatta This podcast is produced by Launchora in partnership with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to Jeopardy Bites wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.